Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. What's better than one prime minister? Three prime ministers. <laughs> we'll be discussing Mr. October, Rishi Sunak, and his prospects of bringing stability to the Tories' coalition of chaos. Whoever's in charge, the Tories' commitment to ripping up rule books remains. In part two, we'll be talking about the EU laws the Brexiters want to banish. And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, you have fewer than 100 days to use your stamps before the funky new barcoded ones come in. But do you use them anyway? We'll discuss the demise of the latter. Let's meet the panel. Ros Taylor is a writer and contributing editor at Podmasters. Hi, Ros. Hello, Dorian. Uh, BBC anchor Martine Croxall, who hosts the papers, has been suspended for saying she was gleeful about the leadership mayhem over the weekend. Was this a fair application of the impartiality guidelines? I actually feel it was. Um, and wow. perhaps it's because I did work for the BBC in the past. And so I've been subject to all those rules about what you can say and what you can't say. And in the end, I left stopped working for the BBC partly because I wanted to be to say what I thought about Brexit and I couldn't while I was there. Have you made up for that since? Yeah, yeah, I feel I have. So. <laughs> but it's, it's gleeful is a strange word to use as well because when a government's collapsed, um, you know, it's it's not it's not the word that first springs to mind unless you're quite kind of, oh, God, really good to see these guys going down, which is not, you know, well, not she, what the BBC should be but saying. But I thought she was excited because there was so much news and the news was crazy. Like, that was my interpretation mm. of it. It's like news euphoria. Right. Yeah, maybe. But I, I don't think that's how a lot of viewers would have <laughs> interpreted it. And, and in a world where people, you know, feel increasingly comfortable with dismissing you based on hearing just one of your views, which is the world we live in, I think you have to be super careful not to alienate them. Um, so uh, is she, is, do you want her back? Do you want her done? Do you want to cancel Martin Croxall? <laughs> I, I try... I try to do as little cancelling as possible. I think she ought to spend maybe, you know, maybe a week like Suella Braverman has, thinking about how she's behaved and then be let back on exactly the same terms as before. I think, well, that's that's true, as we'll be discussing later. I think the, the Braverman, like the Scaramucci, is going to be a useful period of time. Um, Ian Dunt is a columnist at The Eye and my co-host on Origin Story, season two coming soon. Hi, Ian. Hello. Did a little advert there. You did, and you kind of sneaked that advert in. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Almost imperceptible. Um, <laughs> protesters from Just Stop Oil, the grassroots campaign to end fossil fuels, oh, yes. have thrown food at paintings and at King Charles's Madame Tussauds waxwork. Which we just won't fucking have. Spray painted the front of 55 Tufton Street and blockaded Abbey Road. The justification is that it gets people talking about the issue. Is it, is it a useful kind of attention? What do you make of that? Uh, uh, no, 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 it's very irritating. Um, I don't really particularly care about any one of these uh, particular instances. I was incredibly fucking pissed off about the, the Van Gogh thing. Um, and, I don't, and, I've, and I've had waves, so please feel free to join in with them. Waves of people on Twitter telling me, oh, yes, but it didn't hurt, though, you know, because there's a screen. And look, and, and you're talking about it, and now we're all talking about it, so it must be a fucking victory. It's just like, the, the mere fact that you're talking about something is not a victory. Like, if I work out onto the street tomorrow and I find a guy there going, Ian Dunn's a twat, I'm not like, this has been a great day for me. Well, we're, all, we're all talking about uh, Kwasi Kwarteng's uh, mini budget. Exactly. We talked of little else. <laughs> what a communications victory. That was like it just it just so it plays into me to that whole sort of sort of four D chess left wing perspective of like oh no they've they've cracked the code of good communication by making everyone think that they're a complete dick and that just doesn't seem to me to be very good communication so no I don't I don't have much 
patients with I couldn't really give a fuck with what they do in Tufton Street and I don't really care about what they do at Abbey Road and I don't even really profoundly care what they do to effigies of Prince Charles in Madame Tussauds but like generally it just seems like the worst kind of fucking teenage bullshit that I can possibly well, imagine I just don't have any sympathy with it at all. What surprised me is I did a piece uh, about Just a Boyle um, earlier in the year uh, and oh, you on, like them, and you like went, them quite a bit, right? Yeah, and I was really impressed by them. Went on one of the actions, uh, an oil terminal, and what they were saying then, it's, it did seem very, very focused. Presumably, this is a new strategy, and I felt like I saw among my friends this temptation to sort of, you know, to take sides, not to necessarily think about whether the strategy is useful or not, but to take sides. And there were people just going, "Well, what's more important, you know, the uh, painting or the, you know, and." It, it just felt like people were kind of that it, you had it was a sort of a, a really bourgeois thing mm-hmm. to, to to dislike these actions, um, and that if you were on the side of stopping climate change, then you had to support them. And I thought, well, that's not the, the history of political movements is not about simply do you agree or do you not agree. It's like the reason why we talk about civil rights movement or whatever is is the strategy that Martin Luther King and others used. It wasn't just that kind of do you agree with civil rights or not it was how you how you kind of move the needle i i just have a problem visually with defacing art like i have like a, an issue with it cuz to me it is in the same realm as burning a book like you're in the process of just like i'm going to destroy this piece of art it's exactly the sort of thing that you'd see from the right or used to see like in the 70s and 80s against something they disagreed with. Just as an image, I just look at it and just think, you look like a bunch of fucking philistines. Like what is going on? And what world is this a good thing for you to have done? Ooh. Should we just fuck the rest is, of the show and talk about is, this for uh, another hour? Is, um, <laughs> is, is a waxwork of King Charles art. Well, our guest today is a barrister and author of the new book, Emergency State, How We Lost Our Freedoms in the Pandemic and Why It Matters. Adam Wagner, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, Adam, during the pandemic, the people talking, on, at least on social media, most loudly about stolen freedoms were, um, were sort of the Piers Corbyn contingent, anti-vaxxers, lockdown sceptics. You were not uh, one of those. Did you find it tricky making the argument about freedom without kind of um, becoming like, a, like an anti-lockdown? Yeah, I, th- I, th- I mean, that you've put your finger on what it's something I found extremely difficult. And I speak about this quite a bit in the book, um, because I never was of the opinion that, that it was obvious that lockdowns or other measures, social enforced social distancing measures were um, necessarily unjustified. Um, and I think some people just seem to jump to that conclusion. I was always a bit jealous of people who seemed to just know that the answer was no enforced anything or know that the answer was, um, you know, send people to internment camps um, when they've got COVID like they did in China. And I just don't think that's right. I think that the, if you look back at at the history of pandemics and epidemics, which I do in the book, you see that enforced social distancing laws have been a part of the response that we've used for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Um, Until we find a better response, we're going to have to be arguing over quite difficult um, balancing between liberty and safety which is which pretty standard from a human rights perspective but doesn't make it any easier to decide what the right answer is 49 days since her first speech on the steps of Downing Street, Liz Truss made her last. The leader elected by 81,000 Tory members has been replaced by one who hasn't been elected at all. It's as if the Truss weeks have been retconned and it was Rishi Sunak all along. Ian this is surprising in some ways, because when we discussed Sunak's chances a few months ago, uh, he looked like damaged goods. 
as as did Liz Truss. <laughs> um, and if we were fairly, we were we were sort of talking about how these probably these two front runners were probably going to fall away. Anyway, um, there was this disastrous spring statement. His opposition to lockdowns, uh, which came out later, his Partygate fine, his wife's nom-dom status, and if you're a Johnson loyalist, his treacherous resignation. And then after losing the last contest, he just sort of disappeared hmm. for a few weeks and didn't say anything. I don't think he spoke at all in the, in the, in the Commons. Um, how did he become the sort of runaway favourite after all of that? Just shit out of options. There's <laughs> just nothing else. What else are you going to go for? Who else is there around? I mean, at least I suppose you, the most credit you can give him is that he was vindicated over his comments in the summer. Although even that I would question because there was plenty of ways that she could have gone about what she was doing that wouldn't have had the catastrophic impact that we had. But the real reason that he's there is basically because they are absolutely terrified and they're going to go for anyone who even half resembles something that looks like competence. So they've gone for him. Yeah, poor old Penny Morden. <laughs> Again. Um, Sunak made a decent speech promising stability and integrity in the morning and then uh, at lunchtime reappointed was it, was it Suella Brubman. Like it was, you know, he makes made some right noises. Integrity is good. These, I mean, those are good words. These yeah. are good words. Um, then reappointed Suella Braverman just days after she had to resign for breaking ministerial guidelines. Yes. Did he sort of blow up his own honeymoon? Or was he never kind of, was he never going to get a honeymoon? So what the hell? Well, he did um, uh, sort of around, I suppose, people like us. And of course, the t- traditional things go, oh, oh, nobody gives a fuck about those guys because, you know, they're just the odd liberals. But actually, I wouldn't, I wouldn't see why it would be such a bad thing for a conservative prime minister to have like a little bit of sympathy from liberal minded centristy people who are like, look, I'm not going to agree. And sure, you're not going to vote for them, but you just don't think you're not a complete fucking nightmare like the last three have been. Like, you know, you're dealing within the realm of reason. That's all right, right? It's okay to have at least people that are open to listening to your message. And then the first thing you do is you clamp down on it. Why do you clamp down on it? Because your sole intention in that reshuffle is to cement your internal position in the party. There's not a fucking bat squeak of a thought about who might actually be competent or knowledgeable in the positions that they're in. It is entirely about making sure all those placeholders are there in the party so that you don't come apart in the seams in the way that your last three predecessors have. But what you've sacrificed is anyone that took him seriously when he said, well, we're going to do grown-up politics now. Because if you're going to do grown-up politics, you don't put Suella Braverman in the fucking home office. You don't put her anywhere. I mean, you wouldn't give her the attorney general. You wouldn't give her any job at all. You wouldn't even give her a job in parliament. So on the basis of that, no, absolutely. He's given up any right he has to be thought of as a mature politician. Um, Adam, as a lawyer, what did you make of Brumman as attorney general? She seemed terrible to me, but I, I'm I, I mean, I mean, genuinely terrible, <laughs> the, the worst. Um, and, I, and I don't mean that in a personal way. A lot of, a lot of lawyers um, approach this from uh, she's not you know, up to the task. I don't, I don't think that's right. I think, you know, she was a pretty successful barrister, um, you know, not particularly senior, but she was on the the government panel, which is quite hard to get onto. It, it's more that she's, she seems to be a sort of tub thumping ideologue and, and incredibly ambitious. And a lot of what she was doing was, was focused not on advising the government, it seems to me on, on the law and what the right thing to do is, but on sort of, you know, quite a sort of nakedly political ideological game plan when she was made home secretary, you know, it, she became like a walking disaster. I mean, what, what was she doing? She was constantly talking about things that weren't government policy, like leaving the ECHR and and, and other mm. things. She was obviously fighting with the prime minister. She had, seemed to have no discipline. And then she got caught um, leaking stuff um, to a, a colleague, which and, and accidentally CC'd someone who apparently um, dobbed her in. So to me, that is not someone who should be in charge of the home office. No, because it's not just the doing the wrong thing, but it's then making a 
bog standard CC error. You know, with the autocomplete, wasn't it? It was like some, a similar name to the person she was If she'd literally. got it right, she'd have been sending it to the wife of the person who she anyway shouldn't have been fucking sending it to. And in fact, she got it wrong and she sent it to the assistant of an MP. You know, and you're just like, even if you got it right, you, what you would have been doing would have been inexplicable. Uh, Ros, there is, I think, no sadder phrase in the English language than trust loyalist. Um, <laughs> Now, her, her faves are, are out, including Mog. Braverman is back. Kemi Badenoch, who we thought was safely being sent around the world, um, now has the equalities brief, um, a brief um, she's expressed some scepticism about in the past. Does this suggest that, that Sunak's sort of summertime conversion to culture war bollocks during the contest is here to stay? He doesn't seem to believe in that kind of thing. No, he, I don't think he personally is very interested in it. You know, he's interested in the Treasury and he's interested in uh, winning back the Tories' reputation for fiscal rectitude. I mean, he, he's going to hope that these people he's appointed will focus on the more practical stuff. You know, for example, he would really like Suella Braverman to, to get the police to investigate burglaries, for example, stuff that, you know, people care about. Um, he has brought uh, some trust, trust loyalists uh, on board as well. I mean, Therese Coffey, he may not it may not be health secretary anymore, but um, she's still hanging around. There's still a lot of people from that era. It doesn't feel like a new, fresh cabinet. And there's so little evidence that these people get stuff done. They've spent a lot of the time they should have been doing their cabinet and ministerial jobs, running for leadership, mm. fermenting chaos. Generally, as Adam says, going off on about ECHR, which is, you know, not, not government policy. Are they really going to stop doing that now? Are they capable of doing things well, like fixing A&E when there's going to be even less money to do it? My hunch is no, they are not. Well, this is what I wondered, Adam. Gillian Keegan is the fifth education secretary in four months. Um, I mean, has the actual running of government departments, is that of any concern <laughs> to the current Conservative Party? I don't think they've had a chance to run run their departments. They've been too busy, too busy chopping and changing. I mean, it doesn't take, you know, you don't need to have run anything particularly large to know that if you keep changing the the person at the top, you know, every few weeks or months or even days, you can't run it. I mean, there's going to have to be a huge sort of um, knuckling down now uh, to avoid the distractions. But, you know, I really worry about people like um, Dominic Raab and Suella Braverman, um, particularly on the justice side and the home office side, which obviously mm -hmm. concerns me and my work. I, I just really worry that they're so embroiled in the sort of, you know, in the, all the skullduggery and the nonsense. And they're so, they're such sort of culture warriors as well that, you know, it, it, it's just, uh, it's painful to see. I'm, I'm pretty exhausted by it all, to be honest. Ian, he is, uh, Sunak, um, a Brexiter and a fiscal hawk, somehow presented as a sort of moderate centrist option. Um, for some reason, I don't know why. As I said, because he sounds like Will from the Inbetweeners doing Tony Blair. Like, I don't know if that's, <laughs> that seems to be enough. Rock's a good suit. Um, we're very used to, when we talk about factions in parties, we just go, there's sort of the right and there's the, the moderates. Mm. Or sort of, obviously, in Labour, there's the left and there's the moderates. But, I mean, how do we make sense of the Tory factions? Like, where does Sunak fit in? Because, you know, trust, we understood where she was coming from. But w what is Sunak? I think that those factions have just basically faded into irrelevance. I spent a lot of the summer doing research for uh, for a book, talking to Tory MPs about, well, explain to me the factional battle in the Conservative mm. Party. You know, because it used to be, right, is it Heath or is it Thatcher, right? Or is it Europe, Euroscepticism, or, or is it the sort of Ken Clark stuff? None of that's 
there now. It's not like, you know, when, when did you last hear anyone, you know, in the Tory party be like, actually, I thought Heath was fucking great and Thatcher was a disaster. It just doesn't happen, right? So instead, you then fall into this current scenario where they're not really talking about the issues. Like since 2016, since the Brexit vote, that issue of state intervention in the economy or the extent to which you pull away has been has been defining the Conservative Party. But there's no actual internal debate, not really in the membership and not really in the parliamentary party about the ins and outs of that. Exactly how much, well, suddenly we're okay with it. So exactly how much or exactly how little would we have under trust? So instead, I think that the real factions, the true ones are basically about the extent to which you allow reality to impinge on your political rhetoric. You know, so it's not about Brexit as a thing that you do. So Sunak supports it as a project, but he just never sounded mad enough for the Brexit guys, right? He just doesn't sound like he's got this, this sense of like, if I wish for it hard enough, it will happen, as trusted, mm. right? We're essentially governed by vibes at this point. And vibe-wise, he's, he's sort of in a different category to those to those tribes. Because I want to, I mean, I mean a, a word for Liz Truss's legacy here. Um, Corbynism was discredited at the ballot box, but of course, they never got a chance to, to mm -hmm. sort of run the country. Um, Truss's IEA free market libertarianism failed in office in front of the whole world very badly, um, finishing off her and her chancellor. So is that version of Toryism just dead for a generation? Obviously, the disciples will go, well, it real, real free market neoliberalism not being tried. But, you know, yeah. it was tried. And it failed. <laughs> but I just don't know how much of that is in the Tory party or has been for a long time. And even what the fuck actually was that stuff? Because it isn't Thatcher. I mean, we, we went over this in the brief period that we had with her. We would have started to bore ourselves if she'd managed to survive for more than 44 days. But, you know, it was like, is it Thatcherism? Is it Reaganism? It kind of isn't, right? Because unless you start cutting out that whole part that's about balancing the budgets, the national budgets, then this really isn't that at all. This is like some weird kind of sprint frenzy of ideology. So I think those guys are, are pretty far out, those IEA guys. And I don't think anyone's going to be coming looking to them for policy solutions anytime soon. The extent to which that's had any kind of ideological impact on the Conservatives, which, as I say, ideologically are in a state of kind of advanced breakdown without an ability to articulate any of their actual core values. That seems to me to be almost too optimistic for them because I don't think they're thinking that deeply about the politics around them to go into that breakdown. So, Ros, if there are no serious ideological fault lines here, there, there is still a lot of fractiousness. There's still a lot of people that don't appear to like one another in the Conservative <laughs> Party. Um, obviously, they're all kind of rallied round Rishi. Is this display of unity just a, a complete sham? Are there going to be people trying to bring him down straight away? No, I don't think so. I mean, displays of unity are rarely genuine. You wouldn't be displaying unity if you didn't have to uh, fake it. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, you know, if, if you're genuinely united, there's no need to to show it quite so vociferously as Tories were attempting to do at PMQs today. If you do, yeah, basically, if you came home, if I came home every day and said to my wife, I'm fully committed to this marriage, <laughs> she would become <laughs> suspicious. Exactly. And you should be. But I mean, they know they know this is the last chance to win back any support, and any credibility in the country at all, because most of them know how badly they have they have screwed up. Sunak is not, as we were saying, a centrist. He's just not a chaotic disruptor like mm. Truss and, to a slightly lesser extent, Johnson were. But he's about propping up the established conservative order and saying and signalling what's necessary in order to do that. And because of the dearth of talent, of rationality, of competency in the modern Tory party, that means pulling in people like Suella Braverman. You know, display of unity... <sighs> 
Yeah, I think I think I think it's as it's as convincing a display of unity as you'll get from the Conservative Party at this point in time. Given the economic crisis that we're facing, um, and given the, the sort of chaos in the party, are they? Is, is any sense talking about a Sunak project, or is it basically just firefighting and trying to perhaps minimise the damage to the country and the party? Yeah, I mean, uh, the Sunak project is more of the same, basically. I mean, it will be what we really are waiting for now is the new budget, which has been pushed forward into mid-November from Halloween. Mm. And it is then that we will move off, you know, what Ian was calling the vibes phase of the Sunak premiership and move into the what the hell is he actually going to do in order to raise enough taxes to keep public services, you know, just about with a discernible heartbeat. Um, but at the same time, pursuing the um, the the low tax agenda the fundamentally low tax agenda which the conservatives want to keep what will he cut and what and how will he tax will he be genuinely adventurous i can say when it comes to taxing things might he you know switch to something like uh, VAT as a as a uh, which which in some ways is a much more progressive tax than than uh, taxing people at source than pay as you own taxes, or will he stick with what has been what has previously been tried? I mean, my sense is that he's a man of the status quo. He is not a reformer. But what is going to win out in terms of the contradiction between keeping MPs on board who are afraid of their constituents turning against them again? And wanting tax cuts. Um, Adam, what do you make of, of what Sunak could achieve? It was noted on a rival podcast that no government this far behind in the polls has ever gone on to win an election. Um, and so I'm wondering if the man who lost to Liz Truss um, can buck history there, or is his job just to kind of limit limit the losses? What should we be looking for? I think most people will think his job is to limit the losses. I mean, he's been he's he's been given an incredibly difficult job, um, partly because what he's going to have to implement is going to be difficult and involve difficult choices. And no, and I'm sure that Keir Starmer, although he's calling for an election, is kind of thinking, well, I'm quite happy for the Tories to take the next two years or eighteen months, and 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 maybe even make some hard decisions that I would mm. like not to be making. So I think that if he can achieve a not as bad loss. I mean, they're not going to lose by the extent of the of the current polls. I expect because Sunak mm. is far more competent than Truss. But if if he can come out with not too bad a loss, I think he'd probably take that. But who knows? You never know what's going to happen. We've had a tumultuous um, last three years. There might be another tumultuous two years that could turn everything on its head. I wouldn't. Yeah, I, I would not have predicted uh, many things that have happened in the last few years. Uh, he's not good. I mean, the thing is that you, you do have to look yeah. at him and just think after 18 months of this austerity now, how's this guy going to do? Because he's obviously, I take, he's better than, I think any of us, you know, he's obviously better than Trust, better than, you know, any of the people that were standing alongside him. But he's not very good. And the more you look at him, you know, you look at that speech outside of Downing Street, you just look like, you do look like a sixth former playing the part of a prime minister in mm. the school play. Like, and then what is your, what is your great political sort of offer? What actually are you offering apart from, oh, this is going to suck, but this is not just going to suck, you know, off the back of something else. This is going to suck after 12 years of us being in power and six years of us telling you that there's some great Brexit utopia just on the other side of the fucking horizon. Yeah. Like, well, it's funny because, of course, well, it's not funny for us 
but it's, you know, it's notable that, that following Johnson's kind of blustery boosterism and Liz Truss's kind of growth, 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 <laughs> all he's got is just like tough decisions, hard times, yeah. man. <laughs> and, and you're like, he's more honest, yeah. but it's a tough sell. He looks like a hangover. He's like a political hangover, basically. Um, Ross Sunet's appointment is a historic landmark, though, because he is the first almost billionaire to become prime minister. <laughs> he, he is also the first person of colour and the first to practice an non-Christian faith. Um, how significant do you think that is? It's it's sort of worth it's worth noting. Does it hmm. mean much? It shows that with money and the right connections, that a person of any faith or colour can make it to the top hmm. in British politics. And uh, absolutely, we should celebrate that. The key things are private schooling and going to Oxford or Cambridge, preferably Oxford. I don't think any recent prime ministers have been to Cambridge. Um, it's just it's the ruthless ambition and the, you know, the ability to mould yourself to prevailing mood. Those are what you need to succeed in the modern Tory party, probably always in the Tory party, and the Tory party will love you for it because it speaks to their, their belief that anyone can make it if they are talented enough and race and faith are irrelevant. Which is, I mean, that's good if race and faith are irrelevant. Yeah, of course they're not, but, but it all depends on having enough money to ensure that they are not. I was quite touched. I'm bringing this up because I was quite touched on the radio by hearing um, Anglo-Indian families saying, actually, this meant quite a lot. You know, this is uh, Baroness Wasser who's saying this. And obviously she has yeah. been very, very critical of Islamophobia in the Tory party. So it's not like she was going, well, racism's over now. But, I mean, she was saying it is notable. Yeah, there's a there's a really, really good piece in The Guardian today by uh, Mihir Bozo. And he's, he talks about how, what a big turnaround this has actually been to the Conservative Party. Because he points out that Churchill despised Hindus. You know, mm. he was a pretty racist guy, Churchill. Uh, and he treated India obviously very badly. And Tories have worked pretty hard over the years to win back this community partly by Harold Macmillan letting Kenyan Asians come here when they were when they were persecuted but ever since then talking up what they perceive to be positive British Asian values and that's one of the reasons why there are now so many people of color at the top of the Conservative Party Ian wrapping up quickly um the usually reliable Boris Johnson shocked us all <laughs> by letting down the MPs who supported his comeback bid um especially poor old uh, Nadim Zahawi. Um, <laughs> how damaging is this if he ever wants to try again? I'm sure the members still like him. But, I mean, are people going to, are people going to feel sufficiently wounded by this? I don't, I, I, don't, I don't think I can, like, imaginatively get my head into the space of someone who's let down by him now. <laughs> you know, what would have... I just can't understand how now would be... Well, you're like, Fuck! This guy's completely untrustworthy. <laughs> He's made me look a complete twat. I just can't comprehend how you could get to that stage. So, you know, if, if you are capable of only recognizing it now, you'll be capable of only recognizing it when he does it, you know, for the millionth time, seven years from now, in my head. I mean, surely his fate probably relies on what happens to the Conservative Party, the extent to which he can look like the great saving grace. But if honestly, at this point, I'm changing this stuff on a day-to-day -day basis. At this point, if I had to put money on it, I would say I don't think he will be Tory leader again. No, I, not least because I don't think he wants to lead a party in opposition. I don't think so. Mm. I mean, I think, I mean, I do think he is perhaps history's greatest wallet inspector. <laughs> <laughs> but, but even then, I just don't, I don't, I don't see it. Okay, next up, a question from our listeners in But Your Emails. This week, Paul Barnes says, as Gore Vidal once said, it is not enough to succeed, others must fail. Uh, good old Gore. At <laughs> uh, the next general election, Tories... 
great guy. Tories <laughs> up and down the land will find themselves forcibly ejected from the world of politics. Whose Portillo moment are the team most looking forward to? Adam, I don't know if in your job you're allowed to. Uh, I don't, are there impartiality rules? Are you allowed to, 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 to say there's somebody that you'd like to see lose their job on national television? Um, I mean, there's no impartiality rules um, for non-judges, but I don't know. I mean, I can't get emotionally um, involved in any of these people, to be honest. I just, what, the thing that bothers me is what they're doing to the country. Um, and I don't I don't mean any of them ill will. I don't mean Suella Braverman or Dominic Raab ill will. I will... I will be pleased for them to, you know, not be in government because I think they're doing damage to the country for various reasons. And I think that there are people out there who can do a lot better job. And, and you know, we've got to, I think it's just time to, for a fresh broom, I think that's what a lot of people will be thinking. It's time to give a, a, a different group the chance and the other group look like they're, they're ready to do it. So that's what I think is going to happen and should happen. Ian, you are... Boiling with ill will. I, I wish them a lot of ill, ill will. will. That is yeah, yeah. basically you are driven by That's ill will. One of my primary psychological drivers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, which we don't have, uh, we don't have that long. Um, but who would you, who would you enjoy seeing lose their seat? I, weirdly, it's Rob, but it is Rob. And it comes down to that. Do you remember during the select committee on the Afghan evacuation and there yeah, were yeah. two uh, foreign office whistleblowers? Yeah. And there's a point in their testimony where they said there was this guy, you know, there was, in fact, there were several guys, but one of them in particular. We had a chance to get them out. We kept on saying, just give us the authority to make the signal, you know, to the foreign secretary. He said, no, I'm keeping that authorization to myself. He wasted hours. Then when they sent him the list of names, they wrote back a message from his private office saying that hasn't been formatted correctly. Please, can you reformat the names? To the more time by that point that they, they never got those people out. And if you read that testimony, you will be incandescent with rage at just the utter moral abyss that he fucking is. So on that basis, from that second, from the moment I fucking read it, it was just like, all I want is this guy out of power. And that is the thing I would take the most Well, I think with this question, of course, we do have to consider um, who's actually vulnerable. Rob is vulnerable. He's extremely vulnerable. Yeah. My yeah. answer, very predictably, uh, would be would be Bravman. But she's, no, no way. Yeah, no, really? I don't like her. Yeah. Um, and she, but she, her seat is tremendously safe. Mm -hmm. horrifyingly safe um, whereas <laughs> Boris Johnson's amusingly is not mm. and surely the best banter result <laughs> would be Boris Johnson running and losing not, so not just not becoming Tory leader again but not even being a Tory MP come on mm. well we can all hope that he'll get you know kicked out as a result of the Privileges Committee inquiry so it may come sooner that moment uh, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think oh, it's going to happen the Privileged Committee. I wouldn't. I wouldn't get too excited about it. I think it, he will escape that. Adam, we're all feeling pretty euphoric here in our little imaginary world. <laughs> Do you have to keep on? Like, we. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I've, 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 I've never been that convinced by him lying to Parliament um, and being able to be found to have been lying to Parliament because I think what he said was relatively careful, maybe except for one comment which uh, about the flat the party in the flat um but even that you know there's two possible interpretations of the of what it meant so i'm i'm really i think interesting stuff will come out of that privilege inquiry um interesting and damaging stuff but i don't think they're going to kick him out of parliament Roz, who would you um like to get rid of 
I think he has to be Gavin Williamson. Um, Who's back? Who's back, yes. Sir Gavin. Back in the cabinet, but without actually a job to do. What does that tell you? Do you know what it tells me? (laughs) That he's not fit to do a job. I mean, forever crawling around near the seat of power, but never actually achieving anything whatsoever of value. I just find Gavin Williamson possibly the worst expression of the total collapse of integrity in the Tory party in the last few years. But it's, the, it's Sir Gavin Williamson. Is it? Oh, my God, really? It's Sir Gavin Williamson. That's what, that's what sums up the absolute foolishness and corruption of this government. So anyway, in answer to the question, though, I would say any of them. <laughs> really, as many of them as possible. I may, it might even be quantity, not quality, that I'm looking for on the, on the night. Next up, while all eyes were on Downing Street on Tuesday, in Parliament, the retained EU law bill was on its second reading. On the 31st of December next year, 47 years' worth of laws that harmonise with the EU will be switched off at once, including uh, laws governing equal pay for men and women, food standards, free broadcasting of sports events, aviation safety rules. And everyone from top lawyers, like Adam, to the RSPB are calling on the government to reconsider. Um, Adam, how easy it is to remove these laws in one fell swoop? Well, I mean, if you if you set it up where they've got a sort of auto-destruct mechanism on them, which is what this bill would do, um, then it's easy. I mean, laws are laws can be removed as long as Parliament decides they're going to be removed. So that's, I mean, just 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 to explain what this bill does. Mm. When we were in the EU for for decades, quite a significant proportion of our law was coming in through the the EU pipe, and it was sort of you know building up. In the UK, and we weren't we weren't creating that law. The EU was creating that law. We had a sort of say in it, and that was one of the the big um, problems that people had. But we le- when we left the EU, um, we couldn't just get rid of all that law because it was sort of you know it's like taking away half the foundations of a house. If you do that all at once, the house falls down. And it does, as you say, it involves things like environmental laws, employment laws, loads of, you know loads of important stuff. So what they did was they they said right, we're going to keep everything, but we'll review it after a while. Um, and um, Jacob Rees-Mogg came along to say, no, actually, we're going to automatically get rid of all that and give the government the opportunity to do what it wants with it. So either switch it on, switch it off or change it um, without really any parliamentary scrutiny. So you sort of have another version of what was going on during the COVID years, um, which is the government, and, and I'm, when I mean the, say the government, I mean ministers, without um, Parliament having much of a say or any of a say, being able to say, right, we're going to write a new law for employment rights, or we're going to tweak this um, this bit of environmental law to um, change the pollution thresholds, that sort of thing. So it, it's a massive power grab by the government, um, and it will end up, you know, with with more chaos because the government will do things, then the um, the the people will suffer because they've not been scrutinised, they've not been thought through, and no one's had a say apart from the government. Well, that's the thing, because it seems like, I mean, there's so many, and this government isn't very good at, like, getting stuff done properly. I mean, unless there's literally going to be holes, presumably you can't just have holes in the law, you remove a law and go, now we've got no, we don't have any aviation safety rules, just go for it, guys. So there will be a replacement law for every single one of these, but your concern is that, it's just going to have had no scrutiny. Is that 
Is that yeah? The issue? It, it's 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 the whole point of Parliament is that for important laws, Parliament um, represent people, individual MPs represent their constituencies, and they can have a say. And you know, th- we have committees and debates and all that sort of thing. But all this will be done by secondary legislation, which means that the government just gets to um, foist it on Parliament, and quite often Parliament will not be able to change it. Will will only be able to say yes or no. It, it undermines the, the point of parliament really and undermines the, the 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 balance of power between parliament and the executive which is really needs to be carefully watched especially with this this particular government in my view ian are there any areas of law here which you think can invite all sort of flashpoints with the eu yeah well i mean the, the bigger problem is also just just your basic capacity to trade with people because you're trading on the basis of shared regulations and shared standards and if you just start fucking around with that then you get yourself into a terrible tizzy. The primary argument is the one that Adam just made, which is fundamentally a democratic one, which is that absolutely, when you're in that kind of rush, you'll just use statutory instruments for it. Once you start doing that, what you've done is you've transferred power from what used to be the EU right over the head of parliament to ministers. But the secondary effect is economic, right? Which is what, what, one of the reasons that we have such you know, reduced investment in this country is because there hasn't been any stability. There hasn't been any stability in our economic life for over half a decade now, you know, absolutely none. If you, if you think about that Brexit period, it's these rolling periods of, oh, it'll end now, it'll end now, in a year's time. Oh, shit, no, we're going to need another six months. You know, nobody invests in that capacity. Now that we come out, we have exactly the same level of uncertainty. And you do this to business and you find exactly the same situation. Just perpetual uncertainty, lack of investment and consequent lack of uh, productivity. Ross, do you think the role of Brexit in the UK's current economic crisis has been under-discussed, partly because Labour continues to treat the word like it's Candyman, <laughs> and uh, you, you're not allowed to say it? Yeah, though you have to bear in mind that most people in this country do not want to hear any more about Brexit. They've had enough of Brexit. and don't, they... So don't say it another time, the third time. <laughs> it will appear behind you. <laughs> Leaving the EU. Um, no, uh, it's it, I mean, undoubtedly, yeah, Brexit put these people into power. I mean, trust would never have been near the premiership without Brexit. Uh, magical, as we've talked about so many times, magical thinking became day-to-day policy and promising what was just not possible became entirely thinkable and useful as far as the Conservative Party was concerned. I mean, Brexit has obviously deepened the economic crisis as well because we made it so much more difficult for ourselves to trade with Europe in particular. Uh, and that means that it's going to be harder for us to pull us pull ourselves out of the recession that's coming. Uh, But more widely, talking about Brexit and exploiting all the divisions that it's opened up means you don't have to talk about the more difficult stuff. It means you don't have to talk about the minutiae of policy. And you can talk instead about the exciting psychodrama in the in the Tory party. It's a distraction. And that's really what has what has got us here. Uh, Adam, moving on to the book, can you start by defining an emergency state? So an emergency state is the term that I use for when the state rearranges itself to deal with an existential threat. Usually that means a, a war or a, or some sort of economic shock or terrorism or, in, in the case of the book, the pandemic. Fundamentally, it involves a huge transfer of power, um, usually to the government, um, usually on a temporary basis, to allow for extreme and urgent measures to be taken to deal with the threat. So that could involve the massive transfer of resources. It could involve draconian laws to um, to prevent people doing things which will get in the way. Um, and 
that over concentration of power um you know is can be necessary because you've got to you you can't just it can't be business as usual during during a real emergency um which covid definitely was but it also comes with costs um so the over concentration of power always leads to um some kind of corruption um if it goes on for too long um it leads to bad decision making because you lose the benefits of of the things we've been talking about scrutiny of all those bits of democracies that that generally argue with each other but for the greater good of coming up with better policies and it can be self-perpetuating so people get used to um, having lots of power and they quite like being able to just sort of wake up in the morning and write a law and then sign it at the bottom as matt hancock was doing and did over a hundred times during the pandemic and that becoming the law mm. of the land without all the all the messy fuss of parliament so that that's what an emergency state is and i say that it lasted for over two years during the covid pandemic and what was the legal foundation which old laws were being tapped? Yeah, it was something called the Public Health Act, nineteen eighty-four, which was um, which is a pretty old piece of legislation. It actually, goes back over a hundred years, but it was it was upgraded um, and supercharged in two thousand and eight after the SARS pandemic, um, because the World Health Organization basically said to member states, "You need to get ready for a, a a big pandemic," and that means upgrading your sort of public health laws. And one of the things that that we did was we brought in this um, change to the Public Health Act, which basically gave ministers unlimited powers with pretty much no parliamentary scrutiny because you didn't have to put a law before Parliament for four weeks after it was passed. It was passed just by um, the minister signing the bottom of the piece of paper. So during the pandemic, we ended up with over 100 laws enforcing lockdowns, travel restrictions, hotel quarantine, self-isolation, face coverings, all of that. Um, and only eight of them were um, were looked at by Parliament before they came into force, let alone voted on. Um, and you do acknowledge in the book that, you know, this is an emergency situation. It was very frantic at the start of the pandemic. One of the, the big problems, of course, that, that people talk about from a public health uh, point of view was that lockdown happened too late. So how do you introduce more scrutiny and accountability in an emergency situation? Do you, do you have to do sort of do you have to, are there things that you have to do in advance? I don't know how you could you could have all of those things be subjected to, you know, scrutiny by lawyers and by MPs when you're in a situation where every day counts. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And and I do say in the book that I think during those first few weeks, during the sort of real major panic stage of the pandemic, you can understand why you can't um, delay things and you're going to have to take big decisions without um, the usual levels of scrutiny. But I think that pattern of signing the laws and not scrutinising and not involving Parliament lasted for over two years. One of the weird things is that often these policies would be announced in the Telegraph um, behind a paywall weeks before they would sort of be floated. Um, and the laws were obviously being written, but then the law the, the law itself would would be brought in without any kind of scrutiny at all. It just They would just do the usual thing of, of, of bringing it to Parliament weeks later. So I think, and, and not every government did it like that. Not even every government in the UK did it like that. I mean, in Scotland, they were much more collaborative and inclusive right. with, with Parliament. Um, so I think it was quite an England-specific um, set of behaviors um that i think were probably related more to the um the inclinations of boris johnson and his um close advisors than than the than anything to do with the necessities of emergency lawmaking 
Well, you had a, had a real moment uh, on Twitter during Partygate, where, of course, you were a real, you're an expert in exactly which laws might have been broken. You say towards the end of the book that, you know, that, that sort of everybody um, who was prosecuted for breaking um, pandemic-related laws, you know, should have their their um, cases reassessed. I mean, would that be, would you want an, an amnesty or were there some cases like, I don't know, I remember that the, 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 there was a woman with a sort of an, an, uh, an anti-vaxxer with a hairdressing salon that just would not close. And every time she opened it up, she got fined and then it got closed and then, closed, and then she'd open it up again and she got fined again. Which kinds of laws did you think, which kind of prosecutions do you think were fair and which should never have taken place? Broadly speaking, well, I, I don't, I don't think an, an amnesty is realistic. I think that people would probably agree that that had to be some enforcement of restrictions um, during the pandemic. But I do worry about the fact that when they, when the CPS have reviewed certain prosecutions, they found that about a third of them were wrongly prosecuted. It wasn't even the CPS prosecuting; it was mostly the police directly prosecuting. Mm. Um, and that means there's probably a lot of people out there with criminal records now. Um, over over two thousand prosecutions in London alone were done behind closed doors, and and, and when I say that, I mean a judge sitting uh, with the papers would not invite the defendant; they would just convict um, on the basis of the police evidence, which is really a, a bizarre sort of Kafkaesque process. And and there were also lots of people given very very large fixed penalty notices. Um, not so Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak got sixty pound fines because that's what was available at the time. But there were lots of people given £10,000 fixed penalty notices, like you know students that I acted for. And I think, at the very least, the convictions, um, people with criminal records, because they breached or allegedly breached lockdown laws, I think those convictions need to be reviewed. It's a very strange area of law. It's not one that um, anybody was particularly used to dealing with. It was very, And there were very confusing bits of the laws. And they also changed every few days for, very, for significant parts of the pandemic. So I'm just worried that there are lots of people who ended up with criminal records and crippling fines that um, didn't didn't deserve them. There was also this weird thing going on with law and guidance and people were never sure which was which. This was one of the things that I found uh, most most egregious about it all. I mean, you knew why they were why they were going down the guidance route because they didn't actually want to make something illegal because that made it all more complicated. Uh, absolutely and 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 that Nobody seemed to grow. I mean, the ministers got it wrong all the time because the guidance was guidance was usually stricter than the law. Um, and that meant that the police, I mean, one, one of the things I talk about in the book is that I had this sort of weird hobby of of going up to police that I saw um, uh, out and about enforcing lockdown restrictions and just asking them what they were up to. And, and they generally really had only the vaguest understanding of what the law was. Um, and these were the people who were handing out fixed penalty notices if they believed that somebody had committed a uh, an offence. It was chaotic throughout the pandemic. Well, um, fingers crossed for the next pandemic. <laughs> I'll have, a, have another shot at getting it right. Before we go, let's take a look at the stories that aren't getting the attention they deserve in Under the Radar. Uh, Ian. Uh, there's uh, a tweet by Edwina Curry that I feel didn't get enough attention. Okay. Um, in which she says, I've possibly broken my hip. I'm going to have to go in for an operation. And she's taken a photo of the ceiling of the hospital just as she's about to go into the operation. It just says major five, major six, major seven, major eight. And then she wrote underneath it, looks like a historic liaison is coming back to bite me. Now, 
I have never particularly liked Edwina Curry, but it was one of those streets where you're just like, oh, I like you now. <laughs> you good... basically just single-handedly made me like you, uh, which I wasn't expecting. That's a good tweet. You see, Twitter can sometimes bring us together as much as it tears us apart. <laughs> I'm very t- I've got a little tear in my eye. Um, Roz. <laughs> So I noticed this week that um, uh, it turns out more and more people are changing jobs the whole time. There are a million people moving jobs every three months in this country, which is... uh, Are they the same million? (laughs) (laughs) Make up your minds, guys. (laughs) Which is, yeah, I mean, this is actually obeying the instruction from that Tory MP who, uh, you know, when asked what people should do about inflation, basically said you should go out and get a better paid job if you can't pay your bills. Or get two. And presumably people are literally following that advice. But this this is actually quite worrying in terms of how it's going to drive up inflation further because people who get out and get a new job get a new job usually because they're better paid and that is only going to to stoke inflation it's also going to bleed the public sector which is still paying very Mm. badly compared to the private sector it's going to bleed even more jobs from that so while it might at first seem a great thing that so many people are getting new jobs that they want it's not all that it seems um, I can't believe you left a joke about cabinet reshuffles on the on the table there. Quite shocked by that. But then it was every three months, not every three weeks. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, didn't quite tally. Um, Adam, so one of the annoying or difficult things about this sort of constant political turmoil is that we're actually missing the actual stuff that this government are doing, and they are doing some stuff. Um, and one of the things they're doing is is bringing in the, a public order bill. I'm really worrying about this public order bill because it's basically an attempt to make a lot of what um, Extinction Rebellion and Black Lives Matter, those sort of big protest movements do to get people's attention um, illegal. And one of the things that Wensuela Braverman, um, in her last stint of Home Secretary, um, managed to do was bring in a new bit of that public order bill. A lot of those things we've, we saw before um, through the policing bill, which they were rejected by the Lords. But there's a new bit, which I'm really worried about because I do a lot of work in this area. And it basically allows the government to go and get an injunction, um, which is a legal order, um, preventing certain kinds of protest in certain areas um, where it's in the public interest. And it's kind of like creating a sort of mini little criminal law zone um, around areas. So it might be saying around the whole of central London, you can't um, you can't do anything which will block a road, um, which you know is, mm. is really easy enough to, to block a road um, when you've got a mass protest. But the difference is that if you breach a court order, rather than there being a criminal sentence at the end, you've got a, you're in contempt of court. And that means that you can end up with up to two years in prison or an unlimited fine. And that is a really, really serious and big thing to happen. This new power, um, which will probably go through because nobody's paying attention to actually what's going on. Thanks, Adam. Uh, mine is, well, it's not really, it's not really under the radar, but it, it hasn't been mentioned here, I think. I find it just fascinating, the the, the, the sort of real collapse of uh, Kanye West's uh, situation um, due to his kind of consistent and relentless uh, anti-Semitism. Because um, a lot of the time people talk about uh, cancel culture, I think, like you know, I find the phrase rather noxious. Whereas this is actually something where on all fronts, you know, so his agents ditched him. I think his lawyers ditched him. Balenciaga's ditched him. Adidas, at a cost of, I believe, over the next year, a quarter of a billion dollars oh my God. has ditched him. And that has reduced him 
he was a billionaire before this. He was, or at least on paper, because of the Adidas deal. Most of his wealth comes not from music, but from the Adidas deal. So he was worth about one and a half billion. Uh, now, apparently, he's worth 400 million hmm. in a stroke. This is the most dramatic consequences I think I've seen for, uh, and I, I have really no sympathy for the man. Um, you know, whatever his mental health situation might be. I sure, mean, this sure. is this is just kind of wild anti-Semitism, and he will not stop. Um, but I thought, actually, this is, I, I'm, I think we're kind of actually seeing somebody be cancelled. <laughs> and what is remarkable is that, you know, I mean, I've interviewed him a couple of times. I've written loads of stuff about his records. You know, he is arguably the most significant pop artist of the last 20 years. Hmm. You know, up, it's, it's, is it him? Is it Beyonce? Is it Taylor Swift? Whatever. He, he is in that conversation. Like an enormous talent who has just gone to the worst possible place. I hanging out with Candace Owens. I hanging out with Candace Owens and wearing a MAGA hat. Um, and I just thought it, 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 what we're seeing here is actually quite extraordinary. And I can't think of another case where that, where that has happened, where basically the, the roof has caved in on someone's career like that because of something they've said. Did you get the sense from him when you interviewed him that he, this was all mm. that, that this was all bubbling around his his head or not the not the politics. Last time I spoke to him was 2015 and he was obviously very jittery. I remember saying he was the least relaxed person I'd ever mm. he hadn't come out as bipolar then. Um there was something obviously very very wrong. He had a very very strange energy. But there was none of this right-wing politics and I just don't know um how he comes back from this. And I think it's a really it's a really kind of fascinating and obviously rather sad uh, mm. case and that's the show thank you to Ian thank you very much Roz thank you and our guest Adam Wagner thank you Emergency State How We Lost Our Freedoms in the Pandemic and Why It Matters is out now stay tuned for the extra bit exclusively for Patreon backers after our theme song Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and a thank you to some of the huge backlog of generous supporters hello and a big thank you from me to Louis Gill Georgia, Greg Barron, Isabella Mackay, thank you very much, Isabella, Victoria Jones, Daniel Perry Reed, Meg Deskamp, Susie Meller, Simon Barris, and Hannah Walton. Hello from me to Anne Hignett, Alex Hope Rollinson, Kimberly Ferdle, Beatrice Skoltis, hi Beatrice, James Scudamore, Edward Hind, Tom Dickin, Catherine Part, A. Schleutke, Miles Arnott. And thanks from me to Michael Walsh, Hannah Rolls, Oliver Wilkes, Steve Morgan, Annalise, Vince Wool, Christopher Webster, Peter LB, Justine Nettleton and Paul J. Carpenter. See you next time. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Dorian Linsky with Roz Taylor and Ian Dunst. Audio production is from me, Robin Lever, and the producers are Alex Reese, Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronevich with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis, group editor is Andrew Harrison, and Oh God, What Now is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. This week, the Royal Mail has warned you have fewer than 100 days to use any stamps or swap them out for shiny new ones with barcodes on. In the future, they hope people will be able to scan the barcode to watch videos, find out information, send birthday messages to each other, which has not been possible with stamps before. <laughs> oh, brave new world. Um, how often <laughs> do we use stamps? Uh, Ian, you're, you're so technological that you leave the house without cash or even a card and rely on your telephone to do everything. Do you know how he knows that? that he, we're talking the other day and he spent... 
like six, seven minutes complaining about people who leave their home without a wallet and pay for everything with their card and blah, blah, blah. And then there's just like a side to the end. I'm like, well, obviously I leave my house without a fucking wallet. What are you, like a barbarian? It's just, it was like yeah, but the no, most just, old man rant you've ever done. There's fucking George Jetson here relying <laughs> on his phone. And that was a little teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God, What Now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly mini-cast, Oh God, What Else? every Monday morning. Your support keeps us going. Thanks for listening. See you next week.